0: I'd like for you to turn to the 27th chapter of Matthew, and the verse is 46. I want to pick up 45. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, by the way, I'm preaching um, on the seven last words of Jesus, and this is the fourth word from the cross. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Our older daughter's first job out of college was in Midland, Texas. Now, Midland, Texas is a great place, but it really isn't the garden spot of the world. Not many woodpeckers in in, uh, Midland. So I thought she'd be real excited when she got transferred, and she got transferred to Del Rio, Texas. And I thought you'd really be excited about this, a new promotion to management, a raise, And so about a week after she'd been in Del Rio, I called her on the phone just to to check out how she was doing. And I got this voice of gloom and doom. And she said, Dad, this is the most God-forsaken place I have ever seen in my life. Now, the Bible says that Moses struck the rock out in the wilderness. I think the actual site of that event was seven miles north of Del Rio. I mean, it's not... It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. It's one thing to say this is a God-forsaken place, it's another thing to feel God-forsaken. For God-forsakenness is not a place, but a personal condition. God-forsakenness is not where you live, it's how you feel. And I suppose that you can live anywhere in this earth as long as you know that God is there. And so a, a father sent his son out into the night to go out to, the, to an outbuilding and get something for him. And he saw how dark it was and he said, Dad, would you go with me? It's too dark out there for a boy by himself. I suppose that you and I, can walk in the dark as long as we know that God is with us. And so a young man was preparing for his father's funeral, and they were just kind of reminiscing, he and his family and friends, as they got ready for the funeral. He recalled a time when a storm came up on this, to this little country home he lived in in West Texas, and some tornadoes were dancing around out there in Tornado Alley. And his father got all of his brothers and sisters and his wife, his mother in the living room and got them covered with a mattress. And he said he was under this mattress, and all of a sudden it occurred to him that his father wasn't under there. And so he peeked out and saw his father standing by the window, keeping his eye on the storm. And in a flash of lightning, he saw his father silhouetted there. And he saw as a boy crawled out from under that mattress, and went over and stood by my dad because i believed that the safest place in this storm was next to my father i suppose that you and i can endure any storm as long as we know the father is there but what if you feel god forsaken and what if you feel alone you perhaps have felt that before in your life the psalmist expressed it when he said Oh God, why do you stand far off? And why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? And Jesus expressed it. For six hours he's been impaled on that cross. The last three hours he's suffered in total darkness. And there is silence now. There is, it's midnight at midday and silent. The angels sang when Jesus was born, where is their music now? The angels ministered to him in the wilderness after his temptation, where is his where is their ministry now? The angels wiped blood from his brow in Gethsemane, where is their touch now? And Jesus and God broke the silence when Jesus was baptized with his word, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Where is the voice of God now? And it is a crucifixion within the crucifixion. It's sorrow's crown of sorrows. And then comes this cry of dereliction called by the theologians such. And it was called after a term that was given to a ship called the ship of dereliction, And a derelict ship was a ship that had been abandoned. It had no captain, no compass, no crew. And so from this middle cross comes this cry of dereliction Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthan, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has it struck you that this is one of the few places in the Bible where the original language is not translated into English? The words of Hebrew and Aramaic and, and, and Greek most of the time are translated into English, but not here. Has that ever struck you, and have you ever wondered why? I think it's because there is something deep and moving about the prayer of a man in his own tongue. Have you ever listened to someone pray in his own native tongue? There's something moving about that. And thus came this cry of dereliction, this moving cry, Eli, Eli, Ela, lama sabachthani. Does it bother you that Jesus asked God why? Just think how hard it was for Jesus to endure this abandonment. He had never known a moment separated from his Father. For 50 times in the Gospels, he mentions the union he had with the Father. He must have felt in his human heart, Where is my Father now? And why doesn't he do something? It's too dark here for a boy alone. And in his human heart, he must have asked, Why doesn't my Father do something? This storm is too violent without my Father by my side. And what does it all mean? If it is true, as one has said, that these seven words are windows through which we see deeper meaning on the cross, what does these words mean? Well, it means that our Lord is identifying with us. He is perfectly identifying with our, us in our life. He identified with us at the beginning in His baptism, and He is identifying with us now in the last hours in his suffering he perfectly identifies with us and that's why the author of the book of hebrews puts it like this and he thought it fitting he for whom are all things and from whom are all things in many and bringing many sons to glory has made his servant suffer perfected the author of our salvation through suffering. What he is saying is this: that Jesus became qualified to be our Savior by identifying with us in everything. You ever been tempted? He was tempted in every way just as we are tempted. Have you ever been lonely? This is the cry of the loneliest man in the history of man. Max Lucado has a marvelous story about Judith Bucknell. Judith Bucknell was Crime Victim 106 in Miami, Florida. She died from seven stab wounds one steamy June night. And she left a diary. If it hadn't been for this chronicle, this diary, we probably would have never known this woman existed and we would have not known of her lonely life she had many lovers but no love and at the age of 38 she died alone she was a paragon of a confused human being and this and the diary had entries like this where are the men with the flowers and the champagne and the music where are the men who call and ask for a genuine, actual date? Where are the men who want more than just my bed, my booze, my food? I would like to have in my life one where I pass through this life the kind of sexual relationship which is a part of a loving relationship. But she never did. She wrote one day Who's going to love Judy Bucknell? I feel so old, unloved, unwanted, abandoned, used up. I want to cry and sleep forever. You've heard those cries before, haven't you? Have you ever felt like God let you down? Have you ever felt abused and used and misused? Well, look at the cross. For there he suffered the misery of every sickbed and every deathbed and every battlefield and the unbearable pain of being alone. And why? Because he wants to identify with us perfectly in our suffering. It's the time of the year again when the sound bites and the... the, uh, uh, news cameras are turning and men are running for president. Oh, all on television, any time of the day, and that's all you see is these gentlemen running for president. And they start running about two years before, and they have these 30-second sound bites and the news is full of them. And the presidential candidates put on their hard hats and they go down into the factories and they get pictures of them there. Why? because they want you to think that they know what it means to labor in a factory from eight to five and they go down into the um, housing projects and they have their pictures made there you know why because they want you to think they know what it means to suffer poverty and they embrace the minority groups and they stand with their arms around them and they get their pictures made why because they want you to think they understand what it means already when the cameras are off they don't understand they've never been there and I saw recently the excerpt of a cold and and homeless man he was true story he was leaned up against the building uh... in in a city and 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 a first cold blast of winter had come and all the newsmen were down there with their cameras to get the picture of him and others like him. And this is what he said Every winter, at the first blast of winter, you guys come down here with your cameras and you take our picture and you go away and we never see you again till next winter. And he came into this world not just to don a hard hat for a moment nor to put his arm around a minority for a sound bite, nor did he come to visit the ghetto in order that we might get the image of him as someone who cares. He came perfectly identified. He understands all about us. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. When I was a kid growing up, I lived eight miles from town. All of it was dirt road. About five miles from my house toward town was three miles of tight land, we called it. Tight land, for you city slickers, is dark, dark land, and it's slick as glass. Now, as an inexperienced driver in love, was nothing gonna keep me from getting to town. Margaret was calling. And, and so I get in a car after a rain, you know, and head toward town thinking, oh, I hope I make it past the tight land. You know, if I can get back past. And you just don't know how comforting it was when I got to the tight land to see some ruts and no and know that somebody had been there before I I hope it comforts you to know this morning that wherever you go tomorrow and whatever you find yourself in tomorrow he's been there before you he identifies it means more than he just identifies it means that he suffered vicariously he suffered as a substitute for our sin There's more going on here than just his identification with us. He's bearing our sin on himself on the cross. For something happens when man sins that is so serious, it took the death of his son to forgive it. Now, we've not always understood that. Not at the cross when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do nor do we understand now the seriousness of our sin. And so I went out one day to talk to a man about his relationship with the Lord. And as I would press to him his need for faith in Christ, he interrupted me and said, oh, I won't get back in church. I used to go to church a lot. He said, I'll, I'll get back in church. And I'd try to change the subject and get back to the issue of giving his life to Christ. He'd always come back with the same statement. I, oh, I'll get back in church. He said, oh, the ceiling will probably fall in. Well, I'm coming back to church one day, and I wanted to scream, Man, mister, something has happened when you sinned against God that coming to church will not forgive. It's like a rapist saying, I'll send her flowers. It's like a leper saying, I'll wear talcum. It's like a blind man saying, I'll get some contact lens. There's a seriousness about your sin that only his death can solve. Something happened out, that day, out there that day that was unique. Now, other men and women have died with inhumane torture just like Jesus, both pagan and believers. For example, I read one time of a pagan by the name of Marcellus Regulus who was leading a revolution in a Roman Empire and they captured him, took him back to Carthage and tortured him. They cut off his eyelids and they exposed his eyes to the light until the light dimmed to darkness. And they put him in a cask that was filled, that was had blades protruding through its sides and they tossed him around in this cast until he bled to death and he never whimpered. And there are martyrs who have died like Jesus died. Simon Peter was one. If legend is true, he's crucified upside down. James was one. John the Baptist was tortured and these saints of God exalted in their martyrdom. And they exulted while the Numidian lions lapped their blood. And they exulted while the flames devoured them. And while the racks creaked and tore them to pieces. But something different is happening this day. For he not only is suffering as a martyr, all of the wrath of God has been placed on him. For the scripture says that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, something different that day, for he... He dealt with him like a holy and righteous offended judge deals with an evildoer... And discharged on him the full weight of wrath. How serious is it? John Calvin and Martin Luther both agree that just before Jesus cried this cry of depression, he descended into hell and endured the torment of the damned. How serious is it? So serious that god laid on jesus the iniquity of us all and jesus cried why and what he was saying was not that i have i'm suffering at the hands of evil men i'm suffering from god something unutterable well might the darkness well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin and Diogenes down in Egypt when he saw the solar eclipse that immediately preceded the death of our Lord said surely deity suffers or sympathizes with one who does. Occasionally I hear someone talk piously about the fact that they sought the Lord, they've tried to find the Lord. I tell you, no. For before the beginning of time, God has sought you, and how far has He come to find you? To the backside of hell He has come and suffers there you. What does it mean? It means more than he identifies or that he suffers. It means finally that he has given us an example of how to come through tragedy to triumph. Not one time did he lose faith. I say to you, To ask God why does not mean you've lost faith. Not one time did he ever despair. He says, my God, why? And someone said that as long as we can claim him as our very own, we're not utterly desolate. My God, why? And through that tragedy, he came to the place where he could say, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. For in the midst of all of it, he never lost faith. And Habakkuk has written that marvelous word. And God said that he was going to raise up the, Chal- the Chaldeans to bring judgment upon his people. They ask, Why? And God answered, The just shall live by faith. Why do the righteous suffer? The answer, the just shall live by faith. Why does does this burden come to us? The just shall live by faith. Why is it that life has been so unfair to me? The just shall live by faith. That's the answer. For out of one's trust and faith... He comes through to the other side into the light of the assurance of triumph and victory. And so a lady passed by Ron Dunn one morning, standing out in front. And she said, I just want to thank you for that smile. He thought she was just being kind of nice. He said, Well, you know, appreciate it. He said, she said, No, I want you to know I'm thankful to see you smile. For those of you who don't know Ron Dunn, he's this great Bible teacher. His son committed suicide. And this woman had come with her husband all across, completely across Dallas to hear him preach. And she said to him, no, here's what I'm talking about. She said, six months ago, my daughter killed herself. And I thought I would never smile again. I want you to know how much it means to me to know today that it is possible to smile again. The just shall live by faith. The story, and I'm through, there's a legend that an old man had a horse, beautiful, white stallion. And it was, it was of such, you know, quality that people wanted to buy it and they offered him a great price but he wouldn't sell it he said no he said "Um, it's like one of the family i wouldn't sell this horse for anything and his neighbors called him a fool they said you better sell it man you better take it you'll never get a price oh he said no i wouldn't sell it one morning he went out to the to the lot to the barn and the horse was gone And the neighbors came, and they said, See there, old man, we warned you, we told you so. Now you're cursed, you've lost your horse, and you've got no price for it. He said, No, don't say that. Just say that temporarily I don't have a horse. I mean, we we can't make final judgment on that. He said, Don't say that, say not that we are blessed nor cursed. About two weeks later, this horse came back home, trailing that horse. We're about ten horses of the same Quality right along behind. The neighbors came and they said, Well, I guess it's true, old man. You were right. We hate to admit it, but you were right. You were a blessed man. He said, No. Don't say that. It's too early to pass judgment. Say that I have ten horses now. And, and, and don't, don't make a final judgment. His son was out one day breaking those horses, taming them, and the horse bucked him off. He broke both legs. The neighbors came. Don't you love neighbors? Funny. The neighbors came. They said, see there, old man, we were right in the first place. You cursed. Your son has two broken legs. He said, no, don't, don't say that. It's too early to pass judgment. You think his story will go on forever? <laughs> it's too early to pass judgment. About a month later, a war broke out. All these men had sons who had to go to the army. They came and said, you were right, old man. I hate to admit it. Our sons are having to go to war, may not come back. Your son, because he has both legs broken, won't have to go to war. You're blessed. He said, No. Don't say we're blessed. It's too early to. I guess you can extend that story out past 12. (laughs) The truth is don't pass judgment in the three hours of darkness. And don't pass judgment on God-forsakenness, for there is no place on earth where God is not. Let's pray together. Our Father, may this cry from Calvary pierce our heart help us to see there is one who understands what we endure cares there is one who is who bore our sin in order that through faith in him we might be saved and one who endured the worst at all right and may this cry be a call to faith And obedience and service, for I pray in Jesus' name. Now look here with me. There are some of you this morning who have never placed your faith in Christ. Something is so bad about your sin, the only way it can be dealt with is at the cross. Now you can come this morning and place your faith in the finished work of Christ. And what he did there will will avail for you. But you are forever lost until you do. And a part of what it means to suffer the wrath of God is in this text. And that's what awaits you beyond a Christless life. Don't put it off longer. And there are some of you who need to come this morning to place your life in a church, serve God with Christian people, be identified with a church. So when you go to witness and visit, you can say, that's my church and I'm a part of it. Or you may need to come and rededicate your life to Christ. In light of this one's suffering, what is your response? while we stand to sing, we invite you to come.